But the cool thing about sevens is out of the 12 teams, the seven at least probably that you could say could win an Olympic gold medal. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarist, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I have been having so much fun this week watching Olympic trials. I've been watching diving. I've been watching swimming. I've been even watching uh, European gymnastics apparatus finals. I have been getting ready. And my daughter walked in and she said to me, oh, have we lost you now? <laughs> and she said, I didn't think the Olympics started yet. And, and, but I explained the trials and she said, oh, so these are like the fake Olympics. <sighs> but she did understand not to bother me. So that's all that matters. <laughs> oh, we've trained her well. Yes. Uh, we are going to continue on our exploration of sports on the summer program. So today we are talking rugby sevens with rugby coach Ben Ryan. Ben led the Fiji men's rugby sevens team to the country's first ever gold medal, which they earned at the sports Olympic debut in Rio 2016. We talked with Ben about how the sport works and got some sunscreen tips. Take a listen. Talk to us a little bit about how the game starts and what are the rules around getting the ball to your scoring end? Yeah. Okay. So, so I guess one simple way of trying to explain rugby, and, and I'm not trying to shy away from the fact that it is a complicated game, but in, back in the early 19th century, in the 1800s, um, William Webelis at rugby school was playing football with his mates and he decided that he wanted to pick up the ball and run with it because he thought that would be a better way to try to score. And it kind of started then um, rugby. And so if you imagine football, but you can part, you can use your hands, and but you can only pass the ball backwards. So there is no forward passing. And then it's all about getting that ball by passing it backwards to the other end of the pitch where you, you put it over the, over the scoring line, the try line, as we call it, and you score a try. So, so instead of a touchdown, it's a try. And then you score a try. And then there's a, instead of the one-pointer, which is always in American football in front of the posts, you score a conversion, uh, so you, you get an extra two points, but it runs wherever you scored the try along the try line. That's where you then will take the ball back and try to kick the ball. So it can be very difficult if it's on the ends and very easy if it's in the middle. And so that I guess that's the, the basics and that there's no padding. No one wears any pads or anything like that. It is contacts. You know, you have to you have to tackle below the shoulder, though, below the chest. And uh, and yeah, it's been a professional game here in in the UK and across the world since the mid nineties. Um, but it originally started off, you know, in the early eighteen hundreds. So one of the other things that I noticed was a play never seems to be dead. You know, no matter how down the player is, it seems to continue. So what are the rules around being you know being tackled and yet you can continue to play? Yeah. So so if, if you're if you're the ball and. Um, the referee is there in the middle of the field and he can stop if there's anything serious, but normally they'll play an advantage. So if you gain, let's, for, your, for most of your listeners, if, 
they come from an American background, then if it's American football and someone someone throws a, a throws a pass and they and they they drop it, normally you know they'll wait to see if someone lands on the ball and then they'll they'll decide who's got it. But in rugby, that ball will be alive and they might be turned over. The opposition might have it and then they can run it back. And just because the ball's on the floor, it doesn't mean it's out of play. Um, you just have to let go of the ball. You're not allowed to hold onto the ball on on the floor. But then you have something called a ruck um, um, or a breakdown where you have to go over the ball to contest the ball on the floor. A bit like if you've seen ancient versions of of the Eton Wall game and things like that that, that would – maybe your listeners can can Google, but the Eton Wall game, which is played along the, the side of the wall at the public school Eton, and mob games, you know, between villages in, in England, you'd have to go from one village to the other and get a ball across. It's effectively a similar-ish version of that. We just modernised it, and, and it's continuous until until somebody's advantage runs out or the referee decides they have to stop and they have a restart, which is an altogether more complicated because we have scrums and lineouts and kickoffs. Okay, so what's a scrum? Yeah, I was going to say, what is a scrum and when does it happen during a game? Well, again, in American football, you have your scrimmage, but they don't actually like bind onto each other. They're, they're just opposite each other. But in, in rugby, we have eight players from each side and 15 aside and three players from each side and seven aside where they bind onto their opposite man and they form this scrum that's connected with eight players or uh, on each side. And then the scrum half, the, the like the quarterback, pushes the ball, rolls the ball into the middle and it's hooked, it's struck. So it goes back to the to the back of the scrum and then they can play from there. But obviously, you know, the, the other team can push you off the ball as well. And, and it's a pretty unique, I guess, there's, not, there's no really other other sports that have something like, like that really. So it's a combination of kind of wrestling and, and scrimmaging, I suppose. So one of the big differences I noticed between 15s and 7s was 15 seems to focus, the scrums take a long time, whereas in sevens, because it's only six people, you're not in that scrum for long. Yeah. And and, uh, so I remember when just before lockdown, I was in Los Angeles for the World Sevens series and we travel around the world and play in different tournaments around the world. And LA is one of the stops. It used to be in San Diego and um, Las Vegas, but it's now in Los Angeles. And I sat with some American supporters that had never watched the game before. And um, within about a half an hour, an hour, they had, they'd grasped it. They'd understood what was going on with the scrums because it is in and out and it's very quick. And the essence of sevens is that all the complicated stuff around 15s, normal rugby, is stripped away to allow this very fast kind of basketball game um, that occurs without the forward passing. And that, that's effectively where we are. I remember going to the New York Knicks after the Olympics and Roger, who's one of the trainers, athletic trainers at the Knicks, said he watched all the games of the Olympics in, in the in the changing rooms at the Knicks at Madison Square Gardens. He said it just like basketball, but with the ball going backwards. Um, and the Fijian team, you know, they're big guys, 6'5", six, 6'6", six, 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 some of them. Um, he, he really related to that and thought that a lot, of, you know, he could see the, the transfer, you know, I know basketball's five, rugby sevens is seven, but very fast, very quick paced, a um, lot of movement, lots of skills. And that's sevens, I guess. Yeah, I think the the analogy between rugby and football actually confuses Americans where I, if we made the analogy between rugby and basketball, it would be closer because it just looks more like that. Yeah, I mean, we we do have crossover athletes from like my days with England that have gone on to to be in NFL rosters. So one's at the Buffalo Bills at the moment, and one's just left the 
the Atlanta um, Hawks. Uh, sorry, not the Hawks, the Falcons. The Falcons. Falcons, yeah, wrong sport. Um, uh, so they do cross over a little bit from there, but actually it, basketball is a natural one. If we were trying to get crossover athletes in the UK, we would look to basketball you know, primarily that would be a, a great crossover sport to try to find some talent to come into rugby. What are some of the common penalties that you see in rugby? You mentioned that you can't tackle below the, uh, above the shoulders and above the chest. So I would imagine high, ta- high tackles is one. Yeah. High tackle or a late tackle. If someone's already passed the ball or an early tackle, if someone hasn't had the ball and he's been clattered. So, so anything around the tackle we're very, um, our welfare is very, is very high for the players, you know, so avoiding concussion, avoiding any long term injuries for players um, during or after their careers is paramount for us, really. So we're very careful on that. So very technical tackles, it's, you know, it's, you, you might be running at 30 kilometers an hour and so might your opposite man. But technically, it's a bit like a judo throw. You've got to have your head in the right place, your arms in the right place. You just can't exercise into someone. So if you ever get that wrong, then it, then you're penalised. And then that there'd be the more nuanced penalties, really, which is you know if you handle the ball on the floor or you're offside or you do anything that we have a strict conduct. Um, so you can't be rude at all to officials. You know, there's, there's not. It's not the same as in in what we call football or you guys call soccer, you know, you, you talk back to the referee, that's immediately, you know, a penalty or a yellow card. You know, you, there is, there's no dissent in rugby. It's, it's not, it's never been allowed. And I think it's a, it's a good aspect of rugby. What makes a good sevens player and maybe a sevens versus a 15s, because it, you have to have a lot of sprinting. Yeah. So repeat sprints really good. And I, I go back to like a 400 meter runner, you know, that edge of anaerobic aerobic, um, speed. So you've got to have a good, uh, fast, flat time, but you've also got to have repeatability. So, you know, in the US team at the moment, you've got Carlin Isles, who um, actually reached the US indoor 60 meter finals, you know, so he, he's world-class sprinter, but his repeatability is, is, is fantastic. So he can just keep banging out f- very quick, uh, repeated distances. And then you've got to be athletic. Your hand-eye coordination's got to be good. You know, you've got to be able to pass a rugby ball well off your left hand and your right hand, as well as make good decisions. So it's, as far as athletes, they've got to be pretty pretty rounded athletes. You can't have somebody really that's not great in one aspect of what I've just talked about and, and they, they wouldn't survive, I don't think, at the, at the top end of the game. One thing that surprised me, given how much contact there is in the sport when I was watching games, there don't seem to be a lot of in-game injuries, yeah, I think um, there's a reasonably high robustness with with rugby players. You know, a, a bump or a cut or a graze um, generally just gets shrugged off. And if it's serious, generally that's that we 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 tend to get them at the serious end and the low end, which is a cut that requires you know if any blood, then obviously they go off the field. And it's because in sevens particularly, it's the serious injuries that will occur, or the or the small injuries, only because. Occasionally, athletic, the athletic makeup of these of these guys, you know, the some of the Fijians were six foot five, hundred and twenty kilograms, and they can run fast. So if if they're going against somebody else that's a similar size, and somebody gets their timing wrong, it can result in a in a nasty injury just because of the the pace of those contacts. Um, and so we might get you know more serious end cruciate injuries or shoulder injuries, but we won't get those middle injuries that you might get in slower slower sports. 
but by and large, you know, at, uh, they, they can have a long career and, and few players are having to, not many players will have to leave the sport because of an injury they've suffered. You talked a little bit about making good decisions on the field. I'm all, I'm curious after watching a bunch of it, what strategies you develop because it really looks like a lot of chaos on the field. Like I'm running and then like, oh, I'm going to get tackled. I got to pass. Maybe somebody's there. Maybe they're not. I mean, how do you develop gameplay? Yeah, it's weird sevens that um, once you, I guess, get submerged in it and rugby as a whole, there are various national traits that seem to accompany the way that you play the game. So, you know, if if you're playing against the English, then generally they're pretty um, organized. They're structured. They might have a set plays that they'll they'll try to do. Um, And the same as the New Zealanders. But then you come and play the Argentinians and they'll, they'll have a bit more Latin flair. They'll try to throw the ball around a bit riskier. They want to entertain. So will the French, um, whereas the Fijians, the best way to describe it is living in Fiji, you're in a third world where you live in the present. You have no idea what will happen tomorrow. Um, there might be a cyclone, a storm. You, you, you know, you, you, you live in and enjoy the present. They play their sport like that. So they, they'll be in the moment and they'll throw a, a ridiculous pass or try to attempt something, but because it feels good in the present and they'll deal with the consequences of it. And so, so in Fiji, we played a very high risk, very exciting pattern. And because everyone understood that you played in the present, they're all on the same sheet and then they can get their movement around the way they want to play. So it's a, it's an old analogy, but the Harlem Globetrotters and the way that they would entertain people that that is the way that Fijians will play the game because they're in the present culturally and therefore they play their team sports in the same way it's interesting because then when you play a structured team well you look at at the gold medal game from Rio and Fiji just kind of destroyed Great Britain but if you have that very in the moment game versus a very structured game I mean you don't have a whole lot of time to change your gameplay to match to, to beat the other person, right? No, and and so somebody that was playing against Fiji, they won't try to out Fiji Fiji. They they will try to you know go take us down to playing a very structured um, game that that suffocates the natural flair of, of a Fijian. So you know, as a coach, you know, knowing that that's going to happen, and the players understanding that, they'll start to see the cues and the and the tells when an opposition are trying to drive you into wanting to play that way or forcing you and then you're you'll find different ways of of getting yourself out of that and so it's a it's a really interesting um format of of a sport because you play these six games you know you play there's 12 teams in the tournament in the olympic format you play six six games against different teams with different tactics techniques with different players and it's a really interesting one as a coach because you do have to constantly look at the opposition and work out how you're going to do things uh, and your players have to be on the same aligned as you are to make sure that those things work out. So having watched the games with you as a coach, you seem to be a very gentle coach. You're not a screamer. You're not, uh, you know, gesticulating wildly on the sidelines. Was that your style just in general, or was that something specific working with the Fijians? It was probably my style at the very start of my coaching career in, you know, I don't know what you'd call supply teaching. Do you have, do you have that in the US? A I'm supply sure. teacher? So no. a, relief, a relief teacher, I guess, maybe that's what oh, it is. So, 
Yeah, substitute. Yeah. So I, that, you know, when I left professional rugby, I was a substitute teacher in in London. You know, and you rock up at these schools, and they know you're a substitute teacher. So it was a pretty hard gig, and um, and you had, you know, you had you had to be, you had to be on 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 your uh, on your metal. Sorry, I've suddenly forgotten what the first what your question was and why I talked about substitute teacher. <laughs> Because I was talking about you seeming to be a very gentle coach, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I realized quickly early in my coaching career that that to, to suddenly um, meet fire with fire as a substitute teacher was not going to work, <laughs> and I had to find other ways to negotiate what I wanted to get out of them. And then, and then I am very laid back. I think um, coaches should be in the shadows, players should be in the light. Um, but I think you know when I went through the professional game in England, you do get a bit more pressure and a bit more stress. And there were times that I felt that I was not my best version and a bit too animated, but then Fiji reset me really and reminded me that it's okay to, to be calm, get, to get, to get what you wanted across in Fijian culture. It's very rude to, to argue publicly as well. Um, it's also rude to swear in, in public in Fiji. Um, and all of those things I think helped me as a coach, just remind myself on, on what, when, when I'm at my best and that's relaxed and calm, getting my point across being consistent with my emotions, caring for the people that, that are around me. They know that they can trust me. Um, they can have a safe conversation with me. And, and I think that that gave the Fijian boys um, the, the opportunity just to be able to go and do their thing. So since the Olympics, you've moved on from coaching Fiji. How are they doing today? Yeah, so I, yeah, I left in 20, you know, a couple of months after, after the Olympics. And then they had a... Um, a search for a new coach and they had a, a I guess like you know it happens in Olympics you have a bit of a cycle where um, some players you know lose their form some so different things happened I think they had got about certainly from the starting team from the Olympic final five of those seven remained in Fiji so they had a good a good group of players that were going to carry on but they then didn't win the world title for the next two years um, and then in 2019 three years after Olympics they won the world title and then last year they came, I think, third or fourth in a very truncated season with COVID. So they're certainly going into the Olympic Games as one of the favourites for the to, to defend the title in Tokyo. And COVID has been, up until five days ago, COVID in Fiji has been very, very low. And so they've been able to play competitions within the islands um, regularly and train regularly, which none of the other countries have been able to do. So they've had a, a big advantage, which has suddenly ground to a halt four days ago because COVID has suddenly slipped into Fiji, which is a real shame. So they've got they've had curfews and they can do that in the islands. They can shut down towns, shut the borders, have national curfews, um, have roadblocks. It's very something that they can quickly do in Fiji. So. Um, yeah, they've, they've had a bit of a, an upsurge again. So um, fingers crossed in Tokyo, if the Olympics happens, it will be all systems go. Who are some of the other teams that we want to watch for? I know New Zealand, well, but who else is strong? Yeah, so New Zealand have, have been the form team post the Rio Olympics and South Africa. South Africa and New Zealand have been one and two in the, since the Rio Olympic Games. Um, and they've been vying it, vying for it, really. But but the but the cool thing about sevens is out of the twelve teams, there's seven at least probably that you could say could win an Olympic gold medal. So although you have the regular contenders, South Africa, New Zealand, and Great Britain, you also have um, the Australians that are, that are very very good. The Argentinians are outstanding. 
Um, the USA team have been brilliant in the last three or four years, and they've got, I think, the most experienced team they've ever had. Some really talented players and some crossover athletes. Nate, Nate Ebner, who's a Super Bowl winner for the for the Patriots. You know, he's he played in the last Olympics and he's trying out again for these Olympics. So they're definitely not to be underestimated in in their tilt at the Olympic Games and and in the women's games. Um, it, it's similar as well, but the, there's still and one more tournament to go to, to a global repechage to provide one more one more team for the men's and women's and teams like Samoa and France are, are fighting it out and the French both men's and women's teams haven't qualified but if they do qualify they could well they could end up winning the whole thing so it's it's quite balanced and I think that was one of the allures of the Olympic I with the IOC to bring rugby in is that it's not going to be generally the normal people on podiums as as you get and also it's 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 a wide open competition Having it in Japan with the the Rugby World Cup was in Japan, the last one is that because I just reminded. But were they much of fans before? What the rugby call? I guess I'm asking about the rugby culture in Japan because it, that turned out to be a very successful World Cup and people were really into it. Yeah, no, it's, it's rugby is very big in Japan. Um, they have a they have a, a, a top league. It's called the top league. It's a fully professional league that most of their companies will will have these teams. So famous Japanese you know the Hondas, Mitsubishi's, the Sonys, the Suntories. They've all got teams, um, and they can bring in some star players from around the world to play in these. And in the last Olympic Games, Japan were the surprise package. They were incredibly well organized in the first game. They upset the, the 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 you know one of the one of the one of the favourites New Zealand and beat them in the first game and went all the way to the semi-finals where where we played them um, and they they really did they did get that right and so I think on home soil um, they could also be a team to watch out for and perhaps get on the podium They're, and and they appreciate rugby in Japan and um, it's ingrained in their colleges and their schools and their universities as well. In the celebration speech in Fiji, you talked about Fijiana and just the development mm. of the women's game. So is that developing in Fiji and how is women's rugby developing around the world? Yeah, the, the women's game, I think women's rugby has been the fastest um, growing women's sport in the world. Don't, you know, well, you can quote me on it because I've just said it, but, I, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And it's if not, it's certainly one of the ones that's that's quickly increasing and we are seeing nations emerging and moving through and that is is very encouraging especially at the younger age we're seeing girls picking it up at schools and over here and across the world and Fijiana which is the the women's team in Fiji they only probably had about 100 girls playing in Fiji in the last Olympic Games Um, and they still you know beat the USA in one of the who, who were one of the very strong women's teams um, narrowly lost out in the quarterfinals to Great Britain. And I, and I always thought it came a little bit too fast for them. They haven't got used to playing at that level consistently and training at that intensity and being able to commit fully to it as well with the funding. Um, four years on, they're a different team. Um, you know, they've had that time together. They, they've they got a wider base. Um, after we finished the Olympic Games, the first match of rugby that was in Fiji was a women's, uh, a girls' schools rugby match um, that normally, you know, only the closest of friends or family would t- t- turn up to watch. And it was 40,000 people in the national stadium. 
because they just wanted to watch a rugby match because of the success of the sevens. And so there, there is that ripple effect in the women's game. And and I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if the men certainly probably, probably even gold, gold favourites in the men's tournament, but the women could be the surprise package in for Fijiana. When you talk about different levels of play, what do you see in the top levels of play and the, the top athletes that you don't necessarily see in the lower levels? Like how is the game different? It's such a fast game that we have the speed accuracy trade-off all the time, you know, that you can do something very quickly, but sometimes the accuracy disappears, but at the top end it doesn't. So they have both of those. They can be accurate and quick and make good decisions and just they're very good athletes. So from a fitness point of view, you know, these are decathletes really. A lot of them look like decathletes, you know, um, but there's also room for the smaller athlete in sevens, the the guy that might be in the middle of the field, field directing traffic and deciding where where they're going to play. And, you know, the best player in the world, the guy that's just been voted player of the decade is a Fijian called Jerry Tuwai. He played in the Olympics and um, he's probably only five foot five, five foot six. But he, he's just a, an unbelievable um, footballer. You know, he, he's so, so, so talented and so skillful and so athletic. So probably that's what marks them out, the consistency to be able to do things at a high speed with high accuracy and they can make good decisions. Yay for the little guy. (laughs) (laughs) I got to ask about the good decisions because I came up before and I wanted to to ask about what are good decisions versus bad decisions. And I'm guessing it has something to do with turning over the ball, but making good decisions, what, what does that mean? Well, I guess I always look as a coach at decision-making and problem-solving. So um, decision-making is in the moment. You know, do you pass that person? Problem-solving is the slightly longer thing that a coach might be looking at the from the side of the field thinking, okay, how am I going to change the momentum of this game? How am I going to – what am I going to say at half-time? What changes do I need to make? And, and they're all decision-making, but they're at different continuums. So for the players – they need to have this autonomy, this feeling that they can they can see everything that's going on um, and there's so much going on and they can make very good decisions based upon things that they probably can't even explain. It might be a shoulder that's slightly wrong angle. Or it might be a foot that's – suddenly they'll see all of this and see there's an opportunity to, to take a break or make a decision. Um, and it's multiple decisions in sevens because it's all about creating an overlap, trying to get – find an edge, trying to find some space and not a face. And and it's all done very quickly and it all requires lots of communication. So it's a sped up version of kind of high level football where you can pass the ball backwards in football in, in, in soccer. But in, in sevens, there's only seven of you. And so you really have to be um, very good at making those decisions on when to pass, when to hold, when to run, when to tackle, when to leave the ball. All of these things, because penalties and momentum are, are very important in sevens. Keeping the ball possession is everything. Plus, you don't have a lot of time. It, it's only seven-minute halves. Some people might anticipate rugby as being the same length as a, a football or an American football game, but that is not the case for rugby sevens. No, that's it. You know, and, and they'll run in that seven minutes each half. Um, you know, they'll run up to three k, maybe a bit more in a game. And they'll reach, the top boys will reach 35, 37, 38 kilometers an hour. And then, so in a, in a tournament over two, three days of the Olympics, they'll run 20K, most of it at high speed. So that recovery, the stuff that's so big in, in say, the NBA, getting players recovered in between games, is absolutely crucial in sevens. 
to get all of that right. So yeah, short games, but very, very high intensity. Uh, you had mentioned before about crossover athletes. Um, do you, had you found when you were coaching in rugby that you were getting more uh, athletes who had grown up on rugby or ones that had been uh, coming from a different sport entirely, whether it was uh, football or athletics or, or something like that? Yeah, you, you definitely. I think it, there's two two different answers for this. In the men's game, there's more that are coming up, growing growing up playing rugby, but there will be some guys that will come late into it. You know, they, for example, in the UK, it might be that they join the army and there's a, a regiment rugby team and they've never played rugby before, um, or you know, at university they suddenly decide to take take it and and in in our so. Get use the right terminology, but in the US public schools, so we call them state schools, but 90% of those don't play rugby in England. So they come from the private schools. Um, and so the general population, 90% of them don't, don't, don't hit rugby in their early years. So they, they, we have to find other ways to try to encourage them or, or have outreach programs. But in the women's game, there's more um, opportunity, I think, for, for crossover and we play in the UK uh, netball, which is a version of basketball, I guess. Um, but you can't bounce a ball and you can't run with the ball. Um, but it's it's very uh, popular. And a lot of those athletes that play high-level netball in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, will, will go into rugby sevens. And we've done a few talent transfer projects with UK Sport um, when I was England coach, where we found some very good uh, athletes that, that moved from the women's high-level sport into women's rugby sevens and, and will play at the Olympic Games. So you went from the UK, very long sports history, you know, as long as you can get of Olympic history, to Fiji, which had never won an Olympic medal, had, I'm sure, very little support for a new sport, and then a very different political system. So I'm sure there was one, a shock to your life system, but I'm curious as to what the shock was to the coaching system. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, from a coaching point of view, you know, it was a it was the opposite really to to everything I had had in 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 the UK because we didn't have any money and we didn't have any resources, no real infrastructure. And then I, you know, I wasn't then linked into the a, a bigger body like UK Sport over here, and and then the British Olympic Association. We had we had the FASANOC, which is the the Fijian National Olympic Committee, um, and then ONOC also the Oceana um, would help out as well, and they could they could see very early on that Fiji had an opportunity alongside Samoa to to try to get on the podium for Oceana in in the Olympics. So they helped us whenever they could and supported us. But it was it was very different from that point of view. You're putting things into place yourself um, to cr- try to create a foundation and a pathway. Of some of the important things that you, that I things that I think is important for creating a high performing um, culture, but also it reminds you that n- not everything needs to have cash behind it. There's plenty of things you can do to create a high performing culture that doesn't cost a cent. You know, being being nice to people, creating um, good values um, and behaviours, measuring those values, creating good guardrails. You know, around discipline and how you treat each other and protocols, setting, setting, getting your program right, your planning right, understanding stress cycles, peaking for events, all these sort of things, you know, I, I could bring in that didn't cost a cent. And, um, and we saw a really big uplift in performance by just putting those basic foundations into what we were doing. And I guess it, some of that stuff goes back to my earlier 
chat about the 400 meter hurdler in Fiji. You know, just give them that basics foundations. You'll see a massive uplift in performance. And then hopefully from there, then some more funding might come and then that will give them, lift them up to the, to the consistent level that they then can challenge to get places in teams that can go to Olympic Games. Did you ever have any personal struggle with coming from the UK, coming from a democracy and then working in a country that was not? Yeah, you know, it, it's difficult going from, in, it's national sport in Fiji, so everyone's crazy about sevens. And also, if you're the um, you're in charge of the country, you're also head of the Fijian Rugby Union. So when I joined, um, Frank Bynamarama was the military dictator. You know, he had two coups, and uh, his second coup, he took control of the country, and he was also president of the Fijian Rugby Union. And he had put his brother-in-law, who who's recently left his his position, in charge of me, and he had been in prison for. For very serious offences, and and so it very, it's, it's very different to try to understand the system and that how closely aligned it was to the political system of the country as well. But um, I, I, you know, I tried to make sure that I kept those people aware of what I was trying to do. I didn't give them any curveballs. Um, I was honest with them. I was upfront. I didn't um, make any decisions that were political. You know, I wasn't dropping people because you know their parents were in the opposition party or anything like that. Um, we, we kept everything away from, from the, from the team like that. And my manager, Rapati Calvesi was very good at helping me um, navigate the, the waters early on where I wasn't quite sure, you know, why these decisions or these players were being thrown at me. And so we navigated it. And um, I think very quickly, everyone understood that we would just select the best players and we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't serve any political Okay, we we just wouldn't we wouldn't pander to anything other than wanting to get the team as good as it could be. When you have a federation that is led by people who are put in there, maybe not necessarily because they have the skills, but because they have the connections, how does that help the athletes? How does that hinder athletes? Well, it can do both depending on that person, because you know I have come across people that have got their positions. Because of that, you know, because they, you know, they know someone or they relate to someone and they're actually brilliant at what they do. And then I've had others that, that are, are terrible or have been given a, a favor, favorable position because, you know, someone's had a vote to get onto a board or something else like that. And, and you just got to filter all of those out very quickly. And if you've got a good culture where everyone understands what, what's required, and then you'll filter out the people that aren't aren't up to it really naturally and then you've got to make the tough decisions when there's people that are being put put you know i like to always have the quote you know only involve those that are involved and and so it's a reminder really that you have occasionally people that shouldn't be in their positions but you're going to have a hold of fast line with them to make sure that that um, they stay far far enough away from your program so they don't cause any problems um so and in fiji I, you know the fast knock i was very you know that they they're under resourced. They haven't got huge amounts of no experience of of creating world class programs, and then we were the first team really that got anywhere near that. But they're very there's people there that have care about sport deeply and care about and understand the use of sport to help community. And they were very they wanted to create equality. Sometimes it would frustrate me, you know, that um, I'd find some funding to fly the boys first class to the to the Olympics. And it was such a long way. 
And some of our boys are six foot seven and they just couldn't, you know, we needed to have them in, in at the front and fast knock were like, okay, well you can, you've paid for, you pay for it yourselves with the funding you've got, you can fly them there because of the performance reasons, but on the way back, they're going to have to fly economy with the rest of the team. And, and, and that's what happened. Even though we had tickets for, to fly back in first class, um, it wasn't until we did our last leg from New Zealand back to Fiji that uh, New Zealand Airways saw the boys out the back and, and they actually cleared first class and business for us and let the boys have four hours sleep, which was, I thought, really lovely of, of them. Um, so, you know, I got a lot of time for Fastenock. I thought there's some genuinely love, lovely people, you know, that, that have, have dedicated their entire life to helping people become better. And, and yeah, so I was very grateful for their support. And, you know, I, I'm here, I, I work as a consultant with UK Sport and, and it's the same over here, you know, that when you work with some of these governing bodies, there's people that are, their heart's exactly in the right place. And it, it does remind you on, you know, on all the positive aspects of sport and, and how it can uh, help and create community. So here's the most important question. You were awarded the Companion of the Order of Fiji. Does mm. that come with a title? Are we properly addressing you? That doesn't, that, that one doesn't, it just comes as CF at the end of me. So, you know, if I was in Fiji, that they'd, 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 my English pronunciation would just be Ben Ryan CF. Um, but the Fijian um, chiefs also gave me uh, chiefly status. So you know, I think I am the only non-Fijian that is a chief in Fiji. So if you wanted to call me my, by, my, by my chiefly name, um, that's is Ratu Penny Rayani Latinara. And um, Ratu means chief. Penny is, is Fijian for Ben. Rayani is Fijian for Ryan. And Latinara is the, um, is the clan, the chiefly clan that I'm, I'm a chief of, which is in the province of Serua. So, yeah, so, so that, that, that was probably the coolest thing that happened to me in Fiji. No, the coolest thing is you're on a coin. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm on a Kona, coin and a note. Yes. A 50 cent piece and a $7 bill. So um, both those things were, well, it shows you how, how much they, they love rugby in Fiji and how happy they were to um, to show off their success. You know, and, and I think we always used to call Fiji and rugby sevens team the people's team because a lot of the boys would come from, they all came from humble backgrounds that often hold jobs down um, at the same time as playing rugby. So there'd be, you know, porter in a hotel or a farmer or a fisherman uh, or an ar- in the army or a policeman. Um, so the people would see them regularly. You know, they, they, they weren't these superstars that were in big houses. They'd be walking amongst the, the public. And so therefore they really felt an affinity towards the team. And so when, you know, coins and notes and chiefs and all these sort of stuff that are, and three-day bank holidays and things like that are created – you kind of understand it because they, you know, they, they really did love the team and, and they're so passionate about sport. You have a podcast about uh, the Ben Ryan podcast. Uh, you talk to coaches. Why is it important to capture that knowledge in some form? Look, I'm a big, thank you for giving me the plug. Yeah. The Ben Ryan podcast um, is available on, on wherever you go and get your podcast from. And we just finished the first series and I speak to people that, that are mainly the people behind the people. So it's not necessarily the superstars. It's the people that have, have helped those athletes or outside of sport might be someone in military or, or in the corporate world. 
And I think it's important to, what I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of test out what I think is important to create the right culture, the right performance, high performance um, environment, and then hear from other people that have, have achieved high levels in whatever they've done and seen is that what they think is important and how, how, do, how do they do it deliver it how do they put it together so it's all around that really because in sport we, we, we spend you know we can measure nearly everything you know I, the stats coming out of sport is incredible now but we never can we haven't yet got to the point where we can really measure just how good your culture is and yet you know that is what will elevate you know, your performance and your organization or your athlete's performance if you have consistent culture that's really high performing. And so I wanted just to get under the skin, really, of, of speaking about that. And I've had some brilliant conversations from, you know, Margot Wells, who you probably never heard of in the States, but, you know, she she coached her husband, Alan Wells, to win the 100 meters in the 1980 Moscow Olympics. You know, so that in itself is a, is a pretty cool story. There's not many um, uh, husband and wife partnerships that have gone on to win to, to, to coach them to get to gold and Jessica Ennis who is a heptathlete over here in Olympics you know her coach Tony Minicello you know you want I want to I want to just want to hear about not just the preparation but I want to hear what happens when you get to the athlete to the stadium you know what do you do then do you just you know sit back or how can you how can you get involved and and so the things maybe that it, it's kind of those fireside conversations between that I'm always lucky to have as a coach and and in all the roles that I do around the world and I thought, well, well, let's make them more public and have those as a podcast. Well, and it's interesting because different people respond to different cultures and different ways of motivation. So there's no one right answer. It's, it all varies on the type of people you have together at that given time, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and so for me, wanting to, like, talk about Jerry Tuwai, who's the, you know, the best player in the last 10 years in World Sevens, you know, he came from nothing, he lived in a settlement and you know five brothers and sisters and you know he, he used to sell fish on the side of the road wanting then to have a conversation with him about how i can get him better and what his drivers are is very different for me talking to a premier league footballer over here that's on four hundred thousand pounds a week and so uh, it's interesting there, there is crossovers some of them some things they will have in common and so it's yeah like, like you say it's it might be the same problem but very different solutions that people will have to try to overcome or create their own environment are, are there things you've learned that you're going to steal <laughs> it's i tell you my one of my guiding principles was talk to people that i wanted to have a really co- good conversation with who do you want to chat to and also reconnect with people that had been part of my journey so i, I speak to my sports psychologist lecturer from university you know that, that a long time ago um it's about the only lectures that i turned up to at university and and he had a huge effect on me and so we ended up having two podcasts and talked about all sorts of things. And yeah, I've learned, I've learned a lot actually um, from everybody, I think. And I think that's the point about being open as a coach, you know, to, to understand that, you know, that there's, there's sharing of knowledge, you're constantly evolving, constantly learning. A lot of what I do now is, is that with coaches, try to help them, give them the resources and support to, to just get better every day. And, um, and, and I love that about, you know, about coaching. When does uh, Series 2 start? In July. So um, we we just had 10 episodes of Series 1. We'll have 20 in Series 2. So I'm actually off to to Loughborough, which is the you know the number one sports university in the world, tomorrow to interview Anthony Joshua's, who's the world heavyweight champion, his his coach, and come at it from a different angle again because he's also setting up a an academy at the university at Loughborough. Um, so, 
yeah, and there's there's so many people, and I'll go stateside as well. Um, so last series it was with Erwin Valencia, who's head of rehabilitation at the New York Knicks, and um, is a polymath. So that's a very a pretty cool listening to him that you know he can bend spoons, um, and, and as well as do what he does for the New York Knicks. So um, yeah, and I, and I work for Nike as a consultant, so I get to touch professional sport in America on a quite regular basis. Very cool. Very cool. Well. Can- well, we didn't ask the most important question. Ben's advice on sunscreen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know where to start with that, really. The, the players always used to take the mickey out of me because there's a very famous bridge in Scotland called the Firth of Forth Bridge. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But but um, they paint that bridge. It takes a long time to paint the bridge. And when they finish painting it, they have to just start again, you know, because it's ready to paint again. And that was exactly the same as me in Fiji. You know, I'd apply all my... 110 sun factor and put my hat on and everything else and and then I just had to start all over again once I'd finished that process so um, I had to be well organized to make sure that I got all of that right and apply it you know before so I'd get my vitamin D early in the morning where I didn't have any anything on and I'd get some vitamin D and then I'd cake myself in sunblock and then by the late afternoon early evening when the sun was not too ferocious I'd get my vitamin D as the sun factor wore off. And that was my kind of pattern. I just about managed to get myself to a level that looks less than kind of terracotta, a bit, a bit, a bit more brown. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ben. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Benjamin Ryan and on Insta. He's Ben Ryan sevens and the seven is a number. And his website is benryan.co.uk. You can also listen to the Ben Ryan podcast on your favorite podcast platform. I had so much fun researching before we talked to Ben because I didn't know much about rugby. I didn't know anything about him, really. And the more interviews I watched with him, the more I absolutely came to adore him. So by the time we interviewed him, I had a full on fangirl crush. I had to work very hard not to embarrass myself, but he was so great to talk to and so, so much fun. So that was, I hope it comes through because we had a great time with him. Yeah. Yeah. He was so generous and his podcast is really interesting too. If you like learning about uh, coaching and how to draw the best out of people in uh, sports and probably other areas of life, uh, take a listen to his show. It's, I think he said the season two debut is coming up real soon in July. And if you liked Ben Ryan, you're going to love his book, Seven's Heaven, The Beautiful Chaos of Fiji's Olympic Dream, which is our next book club selection. If you buy your copy through our bookshop.org site, you'll be supporting the show. We get a commission from all books purchased through our link, and that goes toward funding our on-the-ground coverage at Beijing 2022. We are constantly adding new titles to our storefront, so check it out. It's bookshop.org slash shop slash flame alive pod. Welcome to Shuklastan. So much going on. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So it's funny because last week on the show, we didn't talk about Chelsea Memo. We talked about Chelsea Memo before the show and then totally forgot that we needed to talk about how she did at U.S. Nationals on the show itself. So we'll backtrack a little bit. Chelsea did compete at U.S. Nationals. She competed on bar and vault and balance beam. And did not do floor exercises. So day one was great. She did a great vault. Her beam routine was much improved from the U.S. Classic. Uh, She stayed on the beam. 
And then bars, she also did a really good routine. Day two, not so great. Not so good. Yeah, she had a rough day too. She just said it wasn't her day, you know, and that happens when you're coming back. You know, even when you're a very seasoned competitor, you have good days and bad days. Mm -hmm. And when I was watching her bars routine, which really kind of fell apart, the minute she did her mount, I said to my daughter, who I made watch this with me, she's too jazzed. And I think her nerves got to her. Yeah, it's a shame, but at least she had a good day one out of it. And And she's not stopping. Yeah, so... She's still training, so we'll see where this goes from from here forward. Exactly. So she was not selected for the U.S. Olympic trials, but like you said, she is still training. Diver Laura Wilkinson made the finals of the U.S. Diving Olympic trials, and she finished 10th, and she did a more difficult dive list than when she had competed previously, which is pretty exciting. And she certainly looked great and looked so happy to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I was able to catch some of it. You know, when she did her last dive, you know how we complain how on gymnastics, the camera is constantly on Simone, like NBC can't go to commercial without focusing on what Simone is doing. So when Laura did her last dive, the camera followed her around and they talked about how wonderful she had been doing, just her legacy in the sport. And it just said so many nice things about her and you could hear other competitors diving in the background and I was like I don't care I'm so glad they're giving Laura some attention and what was nice is she was one of the first of the competitors to congratulate the winners and they seemed so excited to be competing with her because I'm sure she's one of their idols just given the age differential Mm -hmm. so that was really exciting and the whole clan of Laura was there her parents were there all her kids were there everybody was there it was great so congratulations. I'm I'm very curious what she's going to do next as well. Mallory Comerford is currently competing in the U.S. swimming trials. So she's supposed to be in a few events. She did not advance to the semifinals in the 100-meter butterfly, but she's got the 100-meter freestyle and the 50-meter freestyle still to come. Karate athlete Tom Scott lost in his second round of competition at the Karate World Qualification Tournament and Continental Quotas did not swing in his favor, so he will not be going to Tokyo. I was so sad. Did you see his Instagram? It was beautiful. Yeah, he. I think it took a couple of days for him to process what happened, but, you know, he just said it wasn't... Wasn't meant of, to be. Yeah. McKenna Gear is currently competing at the World Parachuting World Cup event in Lima in the R4 Mixed 10-meter air rifle standing. SH2, she placed 10th, which meant she did not qualify for the finals. She has yet to compete in her other event, which is the prone. So if uh, you're new to this podcast and didn't get last week's interview with McKenna, be sure to listen to that episode uh, because it's really interesting what she does in her sport. Check that out wherever you got this podcast. Don Harper Nelson will be competing on Saturday at the U.S. Track and Field Trials in Eugene, Oregon. And Deanna Price in Hammer Throw and Michelle Carter in Shot Put will be competing on Thursday, June 24th. More Olympic trial excitement. Go team! Artistic swimmer Jackie Simino competed in a FINA series event in Barcelona, Spain. She won gold in the solo technical event and bronze in the team event. And Samantha Schultz competed at the Modern Pentathlon World Championships. She placed 25th, and the U.S. women's team placed 10th overall. 
Sailors Stephanie Robel and Maggie Shea competed in their last competition before Tokyo. They finished in fifth place, just five points out of a podium finish. So they were really thrilled with that result. They fly to Japan on July 10th and hit the water on the 14th for the Olympics. Stop saying that. (laughs) It's coming. And finally, author Andrew Marinus will be in conversation with Reggie D. Ford, author of Perseverance Through Severe Dysfunction, Breaking the Curse of Intergenerational Trauma as a Black Man in America. Uh, This is a virtual event through Parnassus Books uh, Facebook page and will take place on Tuesday, June 22nd at 6 p.m. Central. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Right before we get to our Tokyo 2020 news, we are looking for your favorite Olympic party recipes. Send them to flamealivepod at gmail.com. We will compile them and put them on our Facebook group ahead of the opening ceremony so everyone can make the best food for their parties. Here come more playbooks. Woo, woo. Um, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> are they arriving by train? <laughs> By bullet they're train. Arri- no, they're arriving by the bullet train. <laughs> so, okay, version three of the playbooks is coming out. They have released the ones for athletes, press, and broadcasters, So, and they still have marketing partners, international federations, and the Olympic family and workforce ones that, that will come out over the next few days. So a lot of specifics around testing and things like that. For athletes, if they test positive, they will not be allowed to compete or continue competing. But IOC sports director Kit McConnell said, according to Inside the Games, that athletes would not be disqualified. So if they hadn't started competing yet, it would be a probably a did not start. And then if they have to stop competing, and especially if they were in line for a diploma or a medal, they would get the minimum. And this is going to vary from sport to sport on what what happens to you. So every federation is going to handle their sport differently, but they will all be kind of similar in the in what will take place. So say you play badminton and you were going to be in the finals and then you got a positive COVID test, you would get the silver. You would not play, but you would end up with the silver. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that yeah. that does make sense. You know, I was thinking it more of in terms of swimming or track where you make the final but if you didn't start, you would finish eighth. They mm-hmm. wouldn't put you as a DQ, which I'm sure affects in, in many sports world rankings and funding that they get. So this is actually it sounds like a technical difference between getting eighth or disqualified. But it, it matters exactly when it comes down to funding and rankings and standing. Exactly. So um, if they do have to do test positive, they will be taken to a general business hotel that will be their isolation facility. They will be provided with three meals a day and Wi-Fi for free. I I do love the free Wi-Fi bit. Your team will be able to bring you things, except they may not bring you raw food, alcohol, cigarettes, or dangerous objects, and you may not smoke or drink during recuperation. Which Which is probably a good idea anyway, since it's a lung disease. (laughs) Athletes will be required to wear a mask if they're going to use the village gym for training, which makes sense. There is a whole section on the physio aspects. And uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, so if if you use ice baths for recovery, you have to disinfect your hands first, keep a safe distance, use baths one at a time or in small groups, and avoid facing each other. 
specifically specifically laid out. I'm just thinking of, you know, I, I assume people who are doing the ice baths together would be teammates, like a soccer team right. or a field hockey team, mm-hmm. not just some random athletes getting in the tub together, which brings up a whole other <laughs> subject. But now I'm imagining these teammates like sitting around the edge of a ice bath, like like shrimp cocktail facing outwards, <laughs> you know, hanging their arms over the side like the tails. I just can't imagine this is going to work. In in the changing rooms, they have to remain physically distant when showering and changing. And that the the organizer said, you might have to wait for a shower to be, you know, in changing rooms to be available if there's not enough space between people. And they said, if possible, use the village, not the venue for this, which just made me picture like busloads of sweaty, stinky athletes going back and forth to the village so that they can finally shower. Well, the bus drivers will be wearing masks and they will never be so happy to be wearing those masks (laughs) as when the boxers get on. And the other big thing is that you'll you'll notice, because this will probably show up on the feed, the athletes will be required to wear face masks in seating areas on or by the field of play. I believe that if they're seated with their team, they don't have to because the team will be all together. But basically, we noticed this in gymnastics. Yeah, people they'll still were have their face wearing masks their masks when they were not on the apparatus, but to be honest, they were on, they were off, they were half on, they mm-hmm. were on their chins, they were covering their mouths, not their noses. It seemed very performative. Nobody yeah. was really being protected by how these athletes and coaches were using the masks. I don't know if in Tokyo they will be stricter because the majority of people at the U.S. Tra- at the U.S. championships were vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So maybe they felt more lax. So we'll have to see what actually happens, especially for the indoor arenas. And then the victory ceremonies will take place at competition venues. The athletes and presenters will have to wear masks. So that will make it interesting because looking back on this years in the future, when you look, you will always know what Olympics Tokyo 2020 was because the athletes will be masked on the podium. I wonder if athletes are disappointed about that. You know, I kind of would be just because... because you know, it's it's that moment and you that's a well, OK. So another thought just popped in my head because the podium moment is always like a really good picture that you want for the rest of your life or you want that moment. It, it's immoralized. But, you know, maybe it would prevent some podium protests, too. Or are the masks themselves going to be the podium protests? Oh, are people going to be putting things on their masks? You can't tell them to take it off. Right. So that may get interesting. It's another because it's not on their uniform. So they wouldn't be defacing the uniform, but especially the American athletes. Right. And and do you remember like last year's U.S. Open, Naomi Osaka every day had a new mask on with a different message? Right. Or way back, there was a football player who used to put messages on his headband. Oh, okay. So they've always found a way. Athletes Mm -hmm. have always found a way to get their voice out. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting if suddenly in everybody's kit appeared the team mask. Oh, I have no doubt. Press and broadcasters 
or I thought these two tidbits were very, very interesting. They are strongly encouraged to stay in official Tokyo 2020 accommodation. And if they have self-arranged facilities, they would have to be certified with Tokyo 2020 to ensure they co- comply with accommodation guidelines. If you had been accredited as, as an independent journalist and you are still going to the games, may or may not stay in, in the provided hotel. You may think you could find something cheaper. Broadcasters will be allowed to interview athletes for, and this is like mixed zone interviews, 90 seconds maximum. So you know how much we're we're getting. Well, I wonder if that will, because often they'll do that right after the event quick shot. But mm-hmm. then certainly in the U.S. on NBC, they have the big names come into the studio. Right, which has different sets of guidelines. Which has there. different guidelines, and they'll probably do those outside and with a certain amount of distance. So I think in the end, we'll get the same thing. Because in the trials, they've been doing these quick after interviews, and we're still getting some fun tidbits. I so, think we will avoid the stupid questions. Hopefully, hopefully it'll make people work harder to find more fun questions. We can only hope. Right. And so you'll also see commentators uh, and on-air talent probably here and there. They're allowed to take off their masks to do their job. But if they're interviewing athletes, they'll have to be able to maintain the two meters distance in order to not have to wear their own mask. So I think we'll see a mix. And if you're wondering why are they wearing a mask and why aren't they wearing a mask? Indoor, outdoor, distance. Mm -hmm. Number of people vaccinated, unvaccinated, there's going to be so many factors Exactly. that we're just going to have to trust in a way that everyone is behaving in good faith and with the health and well-being of everyone involved being taken to heart. Because if they are not, they could be sanctioned with warnings, temporary or permanent withdrawal of your accreditation, temporary or permanent ineligibility or exclusion from the games with consequences set forth in the Olympic Charter, disqualification, or financial sanctions. So they are kind of laying it down. Please comply, or we could hit you with some stuff. The Japanese government is going to lift the state of emergency in Tokyo, Hokkaido, and seven other prefectures on Sunday. Part of those restrictions include allowing up to 10,000 spectators or no more than 50% uh, capacity at major events. But that doesn't necessarily mean the Olympics because the organizing committee has not yet decided about spectators. In kit news, we have good kit news and bad kit news. (laughs) Well, the best kit news this week was the reappearance of IOC Kit McConnell. (laughs) He just got to Tokyo. My pretend IOC boyfriend, who's been in quarantine for like two years. We have not heard from him. So that was the best kit news I got this week. Right. Some other nice kit news is that South Africa has released its kit. Uh, Their kit is a very funky. Ooh, I like those shoes. Right. They have. So they have shoes that have bright yellow soles with bright matching yellow laces those are like hush puppy we used to call hush puppy shoes right like bucks or something right yeah very snazzy right thing is snazzy right and the the uniform parts of the kit are green and yellow and uh they look very sharp i'm excited to see those in action then we found out just after we talked about india's kit they announced a couple days 
after the show aired last week that they will not be using that kit because it is a Chinese brand and there's a lot of protest about using a Chinese brand for their kit. Now, we did not realize last week that the brand was Li Ning, who was an Olympic gymnast in L.A. 1984. So, who founded this sportswear company. Exactly. So uh, India has said it's now going with unbranded apparel for its athlete uniforms. They're using a, a different brand for the formal ceremony uniforms. So we'll see what those We've look like. We've talked about this so many times. Going back several Olympics where Ralph Lauren got in trouble because the U.S. uniforms were made in China. This is not hard you don't have that many uniforms to make. Just make them, design them, get the fabric from your own country. I mean, if you're a tiny little country that doesn't have any of that, you're probably not going to get in trouble anyway. But if you're a big country, India, the U.S., Canada, you know, all the way, just make it at home and save yourself the headache. Just cook your own dinner and stop with the takeout. You know it's not good for you. Vaccine eligibility has been extended to volunteers for the Athletes Village, the Organizing Committee, and Domestic Media in Japan. Uh, the government struck a deal with Pfizer for 20,000 vaccinations for these groups, and the number of workers guaranteed to be vaccinated by the Olympics now stands at 40,000. And in Torch Relay news, the Olympic flame got up to Sapporo. The Relay has been really scaled back in Hokkaido due to the state of emergency there. So in a couple of cases, or a couple of days at least, they've had only one torchbearer for the day. And then they've had the ceremony where they light the cauldron at the end. And they've read the names of all the other torchbearers that were supposed to have been in the relay. Little bit of IOC news. Brisbane 2032 has moved one step further in the process of becoming a host city. The future host commission and executive board have approved moving that to a vote in front of IOC membership. So they will take this vote at the session meeting ahead of Tokyo 2020, which means we could have a host city named for 2032 11 years ahead of time. I don't know what to think. Like, I think Brisbane will be would be an excellent host, don't get me wrong, but I do have a problem with awarding the games 11 years ahead of time. I mean, we've seen recently how we've gotten into trouble mm -hmm. with Rio, with even with Sochi, certainly with Beijing, how things have significantly changed in the seven year, the typical seven year span. Not that I think Brisbane is going to fall under some sort of dictatorship. I think Australia's government is kind of good and safe and <laughs> secure. Yet, would we have expected a world pandemic even two years ago? So it's, it's, it's a hard balance. On the one hand, you want to give them, just like LA has so much more time and will probably not go over budget and less likely to have some of these issues. But, oh, goodness, 11 years is a long time. We'll see. But if that seems to be the case, all of you listeners out in Brisbane, you got 11 years to prep for us. Because we're coming. We're definitely Set, coming. Start setting up that guest room. <laughs> we will need it. All right. And on that note, we will call it a show. Let us know what you think about Rugby Sevens. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. 
Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Join us next week when we find out what it's like to be from a smaller country when we talk with swimmer Felicity Passon, who will be representing the Seychelles at Tokyo. As we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. your own dinner and stop with the takeout. You know it's not good for you.